the 14th sermon in our series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And our passage today is 1st John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Do you want to turn there in your Bibles? You can follow along in your outline. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word as truth. And in your word, you've revealed yourself and shown us the way of salvation. We pray as we study this passage this morning, which speaks of Christ and of the divine testimony that you give to him that we would understand and most of all, that we would confess Jesus Christ as the Lord, the Son of God, and the Savior of sinners, of which we are great. We ask this, Jesus. We ask this, Lord. We ask this, Spirit. Do this this morning. Amen. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And I'm a big believer that for most people, their biggest strengths in some circumstances can also be their biggest weaknesses in other circumstances. I've had an ongoing argument with one of our former elders about this for years. He's an advocate of successful people being multiprocessors. People who can think and therefore work on many different levels at once. It's similar to multitasking, which is being able to work on several tasks at the same time. Most moms, almost by definition, are multitaskers. And yet multiprocessors are somewhat different because it's really focused on being able to think about different things at different levels all at the same time. And to apply it to a work situation, it may, means you may be supervising and evaluating people, overseeing a current project, and planning for a future project all at the same time. That's not my argument. My argument is that those people, the multiprocessors, are prime candidates to get laid off because they rarely get anything done. They're not finishers. My argument is the more successful people, particularly men, are single processors. 
They may do all the same things, they just don't try to do them all at once. They tackle them one at a time and finish them. And ultimately, the most successful people aren't the smartest, the most gifted, the most talented, the most educated, the most credentials. Pretty much, they're just the most stubborn. They get stuff done. They complete the task, finish the job, and move on to the next one. Now, some of our argument is based on the fact that the other guy is a multiprocessor, and I am a single processor. And when I try to be a multiprocessor, I'm largely unproductive. When I can focus on one thing at a time, I'm far more productive. So I consider being a single processor to be one of my strengths. And therefore, it is also one of my weaknesses. I'm going to give you a case in point. Most of you, not all, uh, but most of you are aware of what our family's been through in the last few weeks. Most of you are aware that my brother-in-law died a few weeks ago and was buried nine days later. It was a very long nine days. We went up there to Massachusetts, and as the token minister in the family, I spent a lot of time planning and conducting both the burial and the memorial service. I helped with a lot of those things we don't think about until we have to, choosing burial plots in the back next to the trees, picking the appropriate casket. Since my brother-in-law was a woodworker, partial to handmade shaker furniture, we chose a Jewish casket because they have no metal parts and use tongue and groove workmanship and wooden pegs instead of metal latches. We made plans for what to do with his clothes, wait a month, go through them carefully, give the best stuff to his sons, donate the rest, and then rearrange the bedroom. We arranged for a family friend to come and help with estate administration, changing over all the financial stuff that was in his name, insurance policies, bank accounts, credit cards, and so on. In the evening, we drank wine and told stories. My shoulders were available to cry on because any little thing could be a reminder. And that week, both shoulders got soaked. And I was repeatedly reminded of that old saying that sometimes prayers are wet. And then I wrote a eulogy. Truth be told, I thought it was pretty good. And I helped my nephew, I uh, give my nephew some guidance on how to write. And he chose what to write. His talk was outstanding. Then we had the viewing and the burial and the memorial service. We packed 250 people into a 150-seat chapel, one of the most historic in all of New England. And we got through it. We talked, we prayed, we heard scripture, we shared memories. His band played, we sang Amazing Grace, and Rebecca closed the whole thing with clarinet solos of Be Thou My Vision, and it is well with your soul, as well with my soul. There were tons of tears and lots of grief. And throughout it all, I was a masterful single processor. One task after the other, nonstop, 
until it was all done. One of my strengths and apparently one of my weaknesses. Because along the way, amidst the busyness and the hecticness and the race to get it all done and already on time, I forgot something. I forgot to grieve myself. And that was a big mistake. I realized it fairly quickly, and so did my wife. But I just couldn't turn it on. I was tapped out. And generally, I know that's pretty unhealthy. And I also knew that it would show up unexpectedly all of a sudden. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Two things happened in the last two days that just caught me off guard and I fell apart. Couldn't stop it, didn't know why. First, my folks called Friday night. That never catches me off guard. But they mentioned an article that they had read in the paper that mentioned a family friend, and Joanne found it online and emailed it to me, and, and I read it, and I Googled uh, the person and found several other things written by this same friend. One was a truly inspirational speech he gave a year ago, and the other was a letter he'd written recently, and it was the letter that got to me. See, on August 17th, just three weeks ago, I preached here that morning. Rich Coffeen preached at uh, Grace Christian Church in Herndon, one of our PCA churches there. Dave Dorst preached in France. Misty May Trainer and Kerry Walsh won yet another beach volleyball game in the Olympics. My brother-in-law died in Massachusetts. And Sergeant Michael Fersky died in western Iraq. Sergeant Fersky was 22, married, and had just found out his wife was pregnant. A military blog, The Thunder Run, posted with permission the letter that was written to his parents the next day, Monday, August 18th. And I want to read you some of that letter. Here's what, some of what it said. Yesterday, in a nameless spot in the Iraqi desert near the village of Ain al-Faris, east of Lake Tartar, Michael was on patrol when they took fire from a seemingly abandoned house they were about to search. With him at the time were several other Marines, two of whom were wounded and are recovering. They live and fight as a team, these young men, and his buddies did. What Marines have done from the beginning of our history something they do without thinking and always without hesitation, they risk their own lives to save his. In spite of grave danger from the continuing firefight, they struggled to save his life, but he was already gone to God. They were with him when he died. He was not alone and was surrounded by the finest men on earth. I did not know your son, but I am sure he was just like every Marine I have known in the three decades and more that I have served. Like my own two sons who are Marines and have served here in this war, I bet he was a good-looking young man, fun-loving, into sports, and a good son, but not perfect. Boys never are. He was also different, Mr. and Mrs. Fursky. 
because he chose to leave the comfortable and safe confines of his home and walk a different path than all the rest. The path he chose led him to be one of the nation's finest, to be a Marine. When he did not have to raise his right hand and swear before his God to serve and protect this nation and its people, he did just that. We all owe him an eternal debt of gratitude that can never be repaid. We also owe you and all who loved him a debt, one that can never be settled. In my private moments, I well up and come near to tears when I think of them. They are not just tears of sorrow, but also of joy and hope that we still have men of substance who are not afraid to step forward and face our enemies without flinching or backing down. I never had the privilege of knowing Michael, but I will remember him and pray for him and for all those who mourn his loss for the rest of my life. Semper Fidelis signed Major General John F. Kelly, United States Marine Corps, Commanding General, Multinational Force West, Iraq. John Kelly is a personal friend. His wife lived with my family for a time when I was in high school. I went to his wedding. He came to mine. And when I read his letter, I just lost it. In my office, staring at my computer uncontrollably for a long time. The second thing to hit me was an email from the former elder with whom I occasionally argue. It was very short. He sent me a quote. It was written about the preaching ministry of John Calvin by the church historian T.H.L. Parker. The quote reads as follows. This is about Calvin's preaching. He says, There is no threshing himself into a fever of impatience or frustration, no holier-than-thou rebuking of the people, no begging them in terms of hyperbole to give some physical sign that the message has been accepted. It's simply one man, conscious of his sins, aware how little progress he makes and how hard it is to be a doer of the word, sympathetically passing on to his people, whom he knows to have the same sort of problems as himself, what God has said to them and to him. And then he wrote, this elder, as I was reading the quote, it reminded me of you and your approach. Thanks for allowing me to understand this. Still love you and miss you deeply, Lane. And I read that and I couldn't talk for half an hour. I met with a man uh, for lunch on Friday so I could get some guidance and spiritual direction on what to do with all this. And he said rightly so, he thought this was a spiritual issue. And then he proceeded to ask me some of those hard Mark Risk-like questions (laughs) about spiritual disciplines and where is Jesus in my life right now. I thought about hitting him, but he's bigger than me. (laughs) And we're going to keep meeting and wrestling with some of those questions. So there you have it, the strengths and weaknesses 
of a single processor. So what does all that have to do with 1 John chapter 5? Simply this. I think having spent some time with the Apostle John now, that he was near the end of his life and he was trying to get things finished. These letters were tasks that he needed to get done, and he desperately wanted us to know what was the single most important process in our lives. The most important process, the most important event, the most important belief, the most important person. And as a single processor himself, he didn't want the rest of us single processors to miss it in the midst of our getting stuff done crass pragmatism. So let's turn again to the Apostle John and let's find out just what is so all-fired important. We're starting in John 5, starting at verse 6. John starts by telling us about three witnesses. Three witnesses, verses 6 through 8. Three witnesses. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, much of the book of 1 John has been about tests. Three tests in particular that the Lord gives whereby we can measure the genuineness of our profession of faith. Remember the problem in the church at that time is people were professing Christ, but they didn't really possess Christ and they didn't live that way. They lived differently than what they professed. And so he, there's tests in this book. And uh, the three tests are the doctrinal test, what we believe about Jesus, the holiness test, how we obey Jesus and obey God's word, and the social test, how we love one another. And each of these three tests are repeated on numerous occasions in this little book of 1 John to provide a gauge of the genuineness of our discipleship, the genuineness of our claims to be a Christian, the genuineness of our profession of faith in Christ. But the passage we're about to study here is a little different. Rather than focusing on the test of our faith, this passage gives testimony to the object of our faith. This passage is about testimony to the genuineness of the person of Jesus Christ. This passage, I think, can be best understood in light of two phrases in the section we studied last week. If you allow your eyes to turn back in your Bibles to 1 John 5, verse 1. You'll see this phrase. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So in that passage, we see something asserted about those who are Christians. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then if you look at verse 5, 1 John 5, 5, you see another phrase. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so there we see an assertion that those who are believers in Christ believe something else about Jesus. He's not only the Christ, he is the Son of God. And what John is doing in those two verses is making clear that the Christian, 
Notice how he describes the Christian. The Christian is born of God. The Christian overcomes the world. And John is saying the Christian is one who makes a very specific doctrinal confession about Jesus. He makes a specific confession about the real Jesus. He believes in the Jesus not of his own personal opinions, not of our imaginations, but in the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who is presented in the gospel. And John is telling us that being a Christian means, means truly believing certain things about Jesus. And one of the important things we note about this is John's idea of what it means to believe in Christ. It means not only trusting in Christ, but believing certain things about his person. So faith in Christ for John is not only trust in a person, but belief in the biblical teaching about that person. For John, doctrine and faith go hand in hand. They can't be separated. Now this sets the stage for our passage, 1 John 5, 6 through 12. And John's discussion of the testimony that God has given to that person of Jesus Christ. How do we come to have confidence in our confession that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners? John tells us that God doesn't require a blind faith of us, but in his kindness, he's given us testimony as to who Jesus is. And so much of this book has been asking us to gauge the reality of our faith. This passage points us to the person who is the object of our faith and gives us testimony to bolster our faith in that person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This section is perhaps the most difficult in all of 1 John. This passage is one of the most difficult in all of the Bible. If you didn't preach through books, you'd never do this one. John reasons that God has given us ample evidence to believe in Jesus because he's testified through the water, blood, and spirit. And until we see John in heaven and ask him, we may never know with certainty what he meant. Now, I want to suggest in that very complex sentence, John is saying something simple. He's saying the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Messiah by pointing us to Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death as testimonies. In other words, John is saying that if you'll consider what was revealed about Jesus in both his baptism and his death, you'll realize the Holy Spirit is testifying about who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is testifying about what was revealed about Jesus at his baptism and at his death. Now, I said this passage is difficult and commentators have disagreed as to what the water and blood refer to in verse 6. Some commentators, like Luther and Calvin, see in the reference to water and blood a mention of Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. We certainly could see how baptism and the Lord's Supper might testify to the person of Jesus Christ. But I think John seems to be speaking of something that is directly in Jesus' own experience and time in history, which points to his person. You really got to step out when you disagree with both Luther and Calvin. 
to make it worse, other theologians, the great uh, St. Augustine, 4th century North Africa, he suggested water and blood refer to the passage when the spear was thrust into Jesus' side, the passage we had as our responsive reading this morning from John 19. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Since John is writing this letter, Augustine suggests that John is pointing back to that mingled water and blood as a testimony to the person of Christ in his death. But most co commentators have understood, and I believe this is correct, that the water and blood is a reference to Jesus' own baptism and Jesus' death. The water, Jesus' baptism, the blood, the shedding of blood, and Jesus' death. This is the most common view held by theologians today and seems to make the most sense within the overall context of 1 John. Now, why would the Apostle John say this? Why would John say that Jesus' baptism and Jesus' shedding of blood in his death testify to his person? There's actually a very simple reason. In this Christian church to whom John is writing, there were false teachers. And they taught false things about Jesus. And specifically... One of those things they taught, there were Gnostics and Doceticists, and if you go back to the first sermon and look it up online, it'll explain all that. But they were teaching Jesus was only the Christ in between his baptism and his death. See, there were Gnostic teachers who taught that Jesus became the Christ, the Son of God, at his baptism. And he ceased to be Christ, the Son of God, before his death, so that only the man, Jesus of Nazareth, became Jesus the Christ by his baptism. He ceased to be Jesus the Christ before he died. And said only Jesus the man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually died on the cross. But Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, did not die. In other words, they said Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism and departed from him before his crucifixion. And it is exactly this kind of false teaching that John uh, was addressing. It was confusing this congregation. And just so you don't think it's some wacky first century heresy, there are scholars in the United States who in the last 10 years have published the exact same thing. And it is their writings which the popular writers draw on for such nonsense as the Da Vinci Code. So don't think it doesn't have an effect. And what John wants them to know, what he wants us to understand in verse 6 is this. Understand that Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus, who is the Son of God, did not become the Son of God at his baptism, but through the baptism, it was revealed who he was. It was declared who he was. And at his death, he did not cease to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but his being the Messiah and being the Son of God was absolutely necessary for his death to have any benefit for us all. And therefore, this false teaching of these false teachers about Jesus is to be refuted. 
He's saying that the water refers to Jesus' baptism at which he's declared to be the Son of God. The blood refers to Jesus' sacrificial death and the effectiveness and worth and value of his death on the cross depends on his being the Son of God. And in all of this, whatever interpretation you take of this fairly challenging phrase, the water and the blood, it's clear that John is pressing home one important truth. If Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, did not take on himself our nature and bear our sins, then he cannot reconcile us to God. And John is simply saying that these false teachers, in teaching what they're teaching about Jesus, are robbing Christians of salvation because the person and work of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation and confessing what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ is essential to an authentic Christian confession of faith. And this is the threefold testimony we uh, read in verses 7 and 8. Look at those verses. There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And John is saying that Jesus' person is testified to by these three things, the water, the blood, and the spirit, the water and blood referring to two historical events which characterized Jesus' public ministry, the spirit referring to the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit as to the significance of those events in Jesus' life. But good as this is, John goes on to say there's a greater testimony. Verse 9, a greater testimony. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. John's point in verse 9 is simply this. The testimony of the Holy Spirit given to us uh, gives to us that Jesus is the divine Messiah, the Son of God, and that's God's testimony about Jesus. When the Spirit testifies to the person of Christ as Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, that's God's testimony. And if we're convinced by human testimony in a court of law, John says, how much more should we be convinced by divine testimony? And what is the purpose of that testimony? It's to evoke faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what do we confess when we became members of this congregation or any PCA congregation? Or, or what will the folks that go through the new members class and decide to join the church have to say? They'll answer the second membership question. And the answer, the answer is yes. But the question is... Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? And John is pressing home that truth in this passage. And he's evoking faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the divine Messiah, the Savior of sinners, because Jesus came in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity comes in the flesh for our salvation, and that is absolutely essential for our redemption. And John is pressing home that truth because it's being denied. Of course, that same truth is being denied in our own 
day and age. There are many, many people who call themselves Christians who deny that truth. And John has one particular word to say to those who deny that truth and yet claim the name Christian. And that word is hypocrite. You cannot say yes to Jesus and then reject the Bible's claims about who Jesus is. Jesus defines himself for us in the scriptures. The scripture give us God's testimony as to who Jesus is. Jesus is not ours to invent as we go along. We may either believe in the Jesus who's offered in the gospel, the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of the biblical and apostolic testimony, or we reject him. But we cannot say, I accept you, Jesus, and I'll define you any way I want. John is making it clear that Jesus, who is the object of faith, the only Jesus who saves, is Jesus Christ presented to us by the revelation of God in the Scripture, testified to in his life and by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And John is making it clear to us that to be a Christian, we must believe in the Christ of the Bible. So you have the testimony of God to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the logical uh, question to follow that is, is what is our response to that testimony? Verses 10 through 12, what is our response to that testimony? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And based on that, I would say faith is a necessary instrument in our receiving the life of the Son. Look at those verses again. He's talking about our response to all this testimony. And he makes it clear that faith is a necessary instrument in receiving the life of the Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God, he says in verse 10. John says very boldly here, that to reject this testimony about who Jesus is, the testimony we receive from the Spirit, the testimony that is corroborated by Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death, to reject that testimony is to call God a liar. Now, we live in a very polite and tolerant society. And when someone wants to disagree with you about your Christianity and what you believe about Jesus, they don't normally say, well, you're wrong and I'm right. What they say is, well, you know, that's fine for you to believe that about Jesus. I just believe something different. And they think that somehow they're being neutral about Christianity. But notice what John is saying here. John is saying that if you say, oh, that's fine what you think about Jesus. I just think something different. If you do that, you're calling God a liar. Because God has already said what he thinks about Jesus Christ. And you can't be neutral about it. You either accept it or you reject it. 
And trying to be neutral is actually not being neutral at all. It's rejecting God's own testimony, which John says is calling God a liar. Not something you want to do if you're going to have to stand before him on that last day. So again, John is pressing home. It's a very important fact that we cannot be neutral about the gospel. We cannot be neutral about the claims of Christ. We must either embrace him and bow the knee to him and worship him and believe in him and rest upon him alone as he is offered in the gospel for salvation or we reject him and forego him and are judged by him in the last day. And John goes on to say in verse 11, this is God's testimony. This is the testimony God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. John is telling us that the life, the eternal life, the life of the age to come, the life of the new heavens and the new earth is in Jesus Christ. It is in faith. It is in union with Christ. It comes only when a person has been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit because that life is in his son. And that's why you can't reject the claims of Christ and have life because in him is life. And if we're going to participate, if we're going to share in that life, we must be in him. We must be trusting in him, believing in him, believing what the scripture says about him. And so consequently, John says, verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John's point is that trusting and believing in the Christ of Scripture is absolutely essential to salvation. You cannot be a Christian and reject Jesus. You cannot be a Christian and reject what the Bible teaches about Jesus. We live in a day and age where people like to have an experience of Christianity while rejecting the teaching of Christianity. And John is saying you cannot experience eternal life apart from belief in the truth about Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus Christ and you must trust him. But you also must believe in the Jesus Christ who is set forth in the scripture. And you must believe him and you must believe what he said about himself. And that's what's revealed about him in God's word. In this passage, John is telling us again and again and again that all those who receive the Christ of Scripture, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, they have life because life is in him. But all those who reject that Christ or who are neutral about that Christ, who want to redefine that Christ, they are not trusting in the Christ in whom life resides and therefore there is no life in them. So what do I do with all that? Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, I believe in Jesus. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. I'm not hanging out with cult groups or wacky scholars. So what does this have to do with me? Simply this. Is it making any difference in your life? Does your faith in Jesus Christ affect your life in ordinary, everyday, routine sort of way? Does your faith in Jesus Christ affect those around you? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. So to know Christ, to believe in Christ, to have life in Christ, is to have the message of reconciliation. Uh, it's to have the ministry of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation is that to complete the circle is all about Christ. Now, I recently read an interview with uh, Dr. Ed Welch. He's a prominent Christian counselor and author. And I read it to get some background on him because he's coming to our Presbytery retreat on the 15th. And, uh, and I just wanted to find out a little bit more about this guy. And I was really struck by what he said in the interview. In fact, I liked it so much I sent the link to the interview to the whole Presbytery. Listen to what he had to say, which bears on our topic this morning. He said, when asked about this idea of Christ and, and truly believing in Christ and trusting in Christ and having this message of reconciliation. He said, my first thought is I had better know Jesus Christ if I'm going to be some sort of ambassador of reconciliation. The beauty of ministry and the feature of it that provokes a certain amount of fear is that it's not a technology and it's not a step-by-step -step process. Ultimately, we all know that the most important thing we can bring to somebody else is Jesus Christ. And that means it must be fresh in our own minds or we're not going to be able to give it to somebody else. He writes, I had a counselee who was very helpful for me. He was the counselor. The counselee was very helpful for the counselor. He was going through some very difficult times, and there were days when the scriptures seemed not quite stale, but certainly not lively. He discovered what he needs to do during those day, dry days is to force-feed himself on the scriptures. I've appreciated that perspective. If Christ is going to be central in our ministry, it probably means we're going to have to feast on the word. And some days we're going to be hungry, and it'll be a delight. Other days we're going to have to force-feed ourselves. But either way, I'm not going to let it go until I have found Christ. Whether it takes a paragraph or whether it takes the book, I'm going to be looking for Christ. To offer someone a person, we have to know that person, and that's a lifelong calling in each of our lives. And he says, the gospel should surprise people. Whether it's the first time somebody hears the gospel of Christ or the thousandth time we've heard it, the gospel should be surprising. People weren't expecting the Jesus who came, and people aren't expecting Jesus now. People aren't expecting all the implications of the cross for reconciliation. And my desire is that the cross of Christ becomes more and more surprising for people and in a certain sense unsettling. If we really know the Christ who loves us deeply, it's wonderfully comforting on one hand, but when we let it sink into our hearts for a little while, it's frightfully disturbing because it means that now we too are called to a different kind of love than we're offering today. And it's going to be a costly kind of love. And as preachers sometimes say, the goal is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Well, all of us are both. We're all people who are disturbed 